Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 43. We're studying in Isaiah and we're going straight through. And we got down to the 7th verse of the 43rd chapter. Isaiah 43, verse 7. We'll read that verse again. It says, Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yea, I have made him. So we pick up with verse 8. Bring forth the blind people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this, and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses, or uh, that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is truth. Uh, the blind eyes here refer to the idols or the false gods. You know, in view of the next verse, it's a rather universal application that is made also to spiritually blind people. And uh, the nations will testify to the uniqueness of these events, and none of their gods could ever have anticipated how God would act for Israel. In other words, they they just have to admit that uh, God has the truth, and they do not declare former things or or show us former things, and they cannot bring forth their witness that they may be justified. It's spoken of in verse 9. In verses 8 through 13 here, we actually have the second address to the blind and the deaf. Now then, uh, Israel's idols were blind, and people are blind as well. But if you'll notice verse uh, 10, it says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be uh, after me. So uh, he says, you're my witnesses. As a nation, uh, Israel had uh, witnessed God's mighty acts on her behalf, not to mention having God's prophets to warn them of coming doom and witness to them. And because of the fact that all the prophets were witnesses, and we find that in the future Christ himself is spoken of as the true servant and witness of God, yet because of all this they had a great responsibility. And uh, I I believe that we've spoken of the fact that the more that we have of uh, knowledge, the more responsibility that we have from God to live up to the knowledge that we have. If you'll notice this verse again, it says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So God is a witness to us in the sense that by his witness, in the fact that we're a servant and we've been chosen especially, as well as Israel, uh, we may know and believe and understand, understand him. Understand that he's infinite. Understand that he is infallible. Understand that and know more about him. Verse 11 says, I, even I, am the Lord. And beside me there is no Savior. You know, many of the Near Eastern religions claim that their deity was formed or created. But God is not formed or created. It's never used to describe the Lord. He says, I am the Lord. He's the Savior. He saves temporarily. He saved Israel temporarily from Babylon. And He saves you and I eternally from sin and from hell. So He says, 
Beside me there is no Savior. He says, I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there is, was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. He is absolutely sovereign over all creation. He speaks of, of uh, things that he wants to be created, and they are created, they're made. Creation takes place. He spoke, and Israel's restoration resulted. He says, I have declared and have saved and have showed when there was no strange God among you. So it was not a strange God that did anything. Therefore ye are my witness, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? He's infinite in his power. You know, his titles are very encouraging. In verse 14, he says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. And so God deals with their enemies. He's speaking of how that he, uh, for your sake I have sent to Babylon. Can you imagine Israel as rebellious as they were? The last chapter showed they had rebelled against God and that he had to pour his fury out upon them in verse 25. And then here, in spite of it, he says, For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and Chaldeans whose cries in the ships. In other words, Jehovah deals with their enemies. He will break the power of their oppressors. They were sent to Babylon. They were taken captive. In verse uh, 15 it says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Look at all these titles. When you begin back with verse uh, 11, I, even I, am the Lord. And beside there is no Savior. In verse uh, 12 he says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Verse 13 he says, I am He. And he delivers, uh, none can deliver out of his hand, his power. Verse 14, thus saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon. And so all these titles, and then verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So he speaks of all these various titles that are given to him. In verse uh, 16, he says, Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. This is an allusion to Israel's deliverance and the overthrow of Pharaoh. He made a way in the sea for Israel's deliverance, didn't he? The overthrow of Pharaoh and the drowning of Egypt's chariots, uh, chariotry and, at the Red Sea. Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea. He made a way for Israel to cross and a path in the mighty waters. He made them a path, but then he made the waters to enclose the enemy. Which bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They, that, they shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow. The word is tow means a flax or a wick. They're put out like you would quench the wick on a, on a candle because of God's power. <clears throat> he says, Remember not the former things. Look in verse 18. Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. 
we shouldn't be preoccupied with all of God's past acts and dealings. Although these acts remind us of God's faithfulness, we shouldn't uh, just dwell on all of these acts of the past except we realize that God has been faithful. But what was very important was the new things. If you look at verse 19, he says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you, shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. In other words, there's yet new things and new blessings that were to come forth. And these new things were things that were to come. In fact, verses 18 through 21, he's speaking of blessed things to come, that they shall show forth my praise. It's all for God's praise that these things are, are given. A new thing, now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Aren't you going to know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness. God made a way for the children of Israel in the wilderness, didn't He? The way in the wilderness, just as God had opened the Red Sea, and He also opened the uh, rivers of water for them, or waters out of the rock, and a way for them to go, and the path that they were led. And He will open up to the whole world a fresh beginning, a new beginning. And there will be rivers in the desert, it says. Rivers in the desert. I'm sure this is speaking somewhat of spiritual blessings too. In verse uh, 19, I mean verse 20, he says, uh, The beast of the field shall honor me. It says, The dragons and the owls, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to, to my people, my chosen. The beast of the field shall honor me. It means that because of a sudden abundance of water in the desert, even the animals would be known to praise the Lord. You know, sometimes when animals fail to, uh, when the animals will praise the Lord and men fail to praise Him, God said at one time that, remember Jesus said that He would make even the rocks to cry out if the, they would hold their praise. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, He says, if you hold your peace, I'll make even the stones to cry out. So poetically, it means that the sudden abundance of water in the desert will call the animals to praise God. Psalm 148, verse 10, and if you look in the Psalms and the way they end up, it says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. There are different terms here. Dragons, they might be called jackals, and there are different names for different ones of these animals. And while animals show in their own ways respond to God, Israel historically did not respond to God and did not praise God. Let it not be said of you and I that we will not praise God for what He does when beast creation is mindful and even other things of His creation. In verse 21 it says, This people, this people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. This people, God had created Israel for the purpose of praising Him. And by the way, similarly, the Lord has created the believer in Christ to show forth His praise and His glory. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 12, that they might be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. So we're, we're to be the, to the praise of His glory in all that, that we do as Christians. 
If you look at verse 22, But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob, but thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. In other words, they have not prayed. I've been talking, Sharon spoke a little bit ago about prayer. But thou hast not called upon me. Israel tended to avoid prayer and often failed to come to God. They failed to come to God with their offerings. They failed to come to God with their prayers. And they avoided can you imagine a Christian avoiding prayer? And yet there are many that do. Why would you avoid prayer? You know the reason people avoid prayer? There's something they need to pray about in the way of confession. That's usually the case. You don't avoid. Now you might neglect to pray. But if you avoid to pray, there's something you need to get concerned about and get out of the way. So, and we're told, we're told and taught by Paul in the New Testament that we ought always to pray. Jesus said that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Paul said that we should pray without ceasing. And so we should be men and women, boys and girls of prayer. You don't have to be at church to pray. You don't have to be in a special meeting to pray. You don't have to just pray uh, at the meal time and ask God's blessings upon it, though you should. But you need to pray all during the day and all during the night and have an attitude of prayer. But thou hast not called upon me, O Jacob. But thou hast been weary of me, O Israel. Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings, neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. You know, God had designated that they should offer their sacrifices Daily, a morning and evening offering. Look in the book of Exodus, if you have time, please. 29, verse 38. It says, Now this is that which thou shalt offer upon the altar. Two lambs of the first year, look, day by day, continually. The one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb shalt thou offer at even. So they were to offer sacrifices twice a day. On a continual basis. Also in the book of Numbers chapter 28 and verse 3. It says, And thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire, which ye shall offer unto me, two lambs of the first year without spot, day by day, for a continual burnt offering. And here in the book of Isaiah, it says, the text that we were reading, Thou hast not brought me the small cattle of thy burnt offerings. In other words, you have not brought these uh, lambs of the flock. By the way, when it says small cattle, if you'll no- notice in your Bible, in the, if you have a marginal reference, it says lambs are kids. So the lambs that were to be brought were not brought, are kids. Neither hast thou honored me. You have Isaiah 44, uh, 43, verse 23. 43:23. Neither hast thou honored me with thy sacrifices. I have not caused thee to serve with an offering, nor wearied thee with incense. Thou hast bought me me no sweet cane. This is a sweet cane for incense. A reed or cane for incense. Incense was not indigenous to Palestine, but was brought from the traders from foreign lands and thus bought from them. And this sweet cane, Jeremiah 6 verse 20 says, let me read it for you. To what purpose cometh there to me incense from from Sheba, and the sweet cane from a far country. Your burnt offerings 
are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet unto me. So they use these ingredients, or this was part of the ingredient they used to make their sacred ointment that was to be used. The anointing oil, you remember they had sacred ointment. Look in Exodus 30, verse 23. If you don't have time to look, I will read it to you. Exodus 30, verse 23 says, Thou shalt uh, take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even 250 shekels, and sweet calamus. So these sweet ingredients were taken from that sweet cane. That was one of the things that was used to produce these sweet ingredients that were, was to make up this special anointing oil. It says, uh, or a holy ointment, a sweet calamus, 250 shekels, if you have Exodus 30, verse 24 now, and of case of 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of all olive and hen, and thou shalt make it an holy Make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound, compound after the art of the apocryphy. It shall be an holy anointing oil. There's two very important verse, verses concerning this. Just look on down to verse 32. It says, Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall you make any other like it after the composition of it. It is holy, and it shall be holy unto you. Whosoever compoundeth any like it, or whosoever putteth any of it upon a stranger, shall even be cut off from his people. You know, I love that verse 32. Upon man's flesh shall it not be poured, neither shall make any other like it, after the composition of it. This holy oil, ointment, was typical of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it's not upon man's flesh to be poured. It's not a fleshly uh, type of anointing. It's for the spiritual anointing that comes to you and I. And it's a typical meaning of it here. And another thing it says, you shall not make any other like it. You don't try to make something that, that is like that anointing. You t- do not try to imitate the Spirit's anointing. He is genuine in His work. If it's typical of the Holy Spirit of God, You don't try to act like you have the Holy Spirit or say this is like the Holy Spirit or put on uh, some fleshly act to try to represent having the Holy Spirit. Well, that'll shut a lot of folks up today, won't it? I mean, when you try to imitate by emotion or by a worked up situation in your own body or your own fleshly being, that which represents the Holy Spirit, you're going the wrong route for that. The Holy Spirit is not worked up, it's prayed down and given to those uh, to carry out God's work as it is needed. So you're not to try to imitate that. Well, let's get back to this. Look in chapter 43, Isaiah 43. He says, Thou hast bought me, verse 24, Thou hast bought me no sweet cane with money, neither hast thou filled me with a fat of thy sacrifices, but thou hast made me to serve with, with thy sins. Thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. They had wearied the Lord with his, their iniquities. It says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. What does he say? 
He says, I blotted out your transgressions. What? For mine own sake. Remember, John speaks in the book of 1 John. He says that your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. For his own sake. And it's that God does not remember our sins. Man's sin is blotted out like a forgotten debt in an account book. He, he takes an eraser and just erases that debt. And this was something that could not be accomplished by religious rites, but only by a divine action. And God is the one that's in the only one that's able to blot out our sins. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Bible tells us this. Uh, let's begin reading with verse uh, 12 through 14. It says this, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, speaking of Jesus, one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are, uh, that are sanctified. Let's read on down through verse 17. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is witness to us, for after that he has said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. Now look. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So our sins and iniquities, as well as Israel of old, was spoken of. But God says in the new covenant he has also made Christ a sacrifice for our sins. And therefore their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. If you go back to verse 26 now. Hold your place always in Isaiah where we're studying. Hold your place there. Look at verse 26. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare that thou mayest be justified. Put me in remembrance. This is the image of a trial that continues here. As God calls on Israel to reflect on the past to see if indeed they are innocent as they claim. He says, put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. In other words, if you have any claim to make, you make a claim that you ought to be justified. In other words, the facts speak for themselves and they do not lie. We don't have any claim to be justified other than what God has done for us. Notice verse 27, thy first father has sinned. And thy teachers have transgressed against me. Evidently, uh, Adam or Abraham may be suggested. But Jacob most likely is the one in view because thy first fathers, they go back not only to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob is the one. Israel is the one that's the content of the passage of Scripture. But thy first fathers, if you want to go beyond Jacob, go back to Abraham and go back to Adam even if you want to go back. And it says, Thy first father has sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Jacob seems the, seems the most likely one, and the point's very clear. The sinful character of the Jewish people has continued from the earliest days of their history, and that they thus are hereditarily sinners. And by the way, you and I are hereditary sinners too. We inherited it, and we are sinners by nature, and we are also sinners by choice. And just as they inherited sin, and they were hereditarily sinners, so are we. If you look in verse 28, it says, Therefore I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary, 
and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. The kings, the princes, like Manasseh, whose sins defile the entire nation, from whom God hath withdrawn his protection, for his infidelity, Israel will be utterly destroyed, just as Israel had destroyed Jericho of old. But if you want to go back and look at Manasseh's sin, you can find in Second Kings chapter 21, and the whole chapter has to do with his idolatry. Second uh, Kings 21 verse 2 says, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. You could read all of it. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped up all the host of heaven. He was an idolater straight out, wasn't he? Worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. He built altars for all the host of heaven in two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire and observe times and used him enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He set up a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearken not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Made them more, more idolatrous and did more evil than all the nations that God destroyed. Can you imagine God's own people and the princes and the kings that were over them leading them in such direction? And the Lord spake unto his servants and prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations and hath done wickedly above all the uh, Amorites did, which were before him, and also hath made Judah also to sin uh, with his idols. And he tells what he will do. Let me just turn the page here. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. In other words, it would be unbelievable to think of what God would do. And that's what he's speaking of in Isaiah chapter 43, the last verse, 28. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary. He withdrawn his protection from them. And because of what they had done, they would be destroyed. I want you to look at the 43rd chapter quickly and briefly. We'll continue with our lesson on that. Now, Jacob is God's servant. We're going to find in this 44th chapter uh, that in spite of all that they had done, that God is still going to be true to and help his people. Look in verse 1. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Now in verses 1 through 8, you're going to have an assurance of great blessings that will come upon his people. In verses 9 through 20, 
the exposing of all of the folly of idol makers and their worshipers. Verses 9 through 20 tells how they make idols and how they worship idols. And then verses 21 through 28, he's going to confirm his assurance that he had given them and to raise uh, their expectations from their idolatries so that they would truly worship him and, and rejoice in him. But these first verses, I want you to look at. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. And even though they have sinned, God promises to deliver his chosen ones, and his promise still stands. You know, you and I have sinned, and we've come short of the glory of God. And in spite of our sins and shortcomings, it doesn't mean we do not need to repent. We certainly need to repent, and so did Israel. But it does mean this, that God is still faithful and able to lead us back and bring us back and to forgive us, and He's going to stand by us. And His promise still stands toward us. Now, if you cannot call that grace, I don't know what could be called grace that He would stand by us even though we don't deserve it whatsoever because grace is, is something the undeserving do not deserve. His great favor, unmerited favor upon unworthy and undeserving sinners. And God had formed Israel. Notice He says, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. In verse 2, Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb. He had formed Israel. And he had created her. And just as a parent does not forget his or her child, so God does not forget his people. Those are his children. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Look at verse 2. Which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jezurun, whom I have chosen. The word Jezurun is a term of endearment. And it's applied to Israel. It means upright one. And the Septuagint records it to mean and renders it beloved one. So it's a term of endearment showing his intimacy behind this expression, Jezreel. And thou Jezreel, my beloved, my upright one, the one that I have chosen. He's speaking of them in this term. He says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. Him that is thirsty, the land was thirsty as well as the people, and floods upon the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. So notice the, the thirsty and the spirit are connected here. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Some have said that this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in a sense that God poured out his spirit upon the new church at that time. There are many parallels that can be drawn. One of them is this, that, you know, Jesus said, uh, blessed is the man that does hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So this is a figure of a man that's thirsting after righteousness. And the parallelism was, is with the Spirit. It indicates that this statement has to do with spiritual blessings rather than material blessings. And though God did pour out water upon the dry land, He also poured out His Spirit upon dry souls. And His blessings upon thine offspring would refer to the future. And they shall spring up as among the grass as willows by the watercourses. That's in verse 4. 
you know, when he says, thy seed and thy offspring, when a seed is watered and, plant, and planted, it grows. And so with the spiritual blessings upon Israel, they grow. They were growing. They would grow. And not only that, they would, the spiritual blessings would result from his, uh, would uh, come upon his descendants, and thus the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would indicate a growth. And as we said, this idea is found, uh, which is realized at Pentecost in Joel chapter 2 verse 29, is found and predicted that he will do this. And shall spring up as among the grass as willows by their watercourses. Verse 5 says, One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name, name of Jacob. One shall say, I am the Lord's. In other words, even the Gentiles would claim to be God's children. And what will they say? Another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. Another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord and surname himself by the name of Israel. In other words, the Gentiles would call themselves by the names of those that were God's chosen people. We have a lot of people that name their children today. We're Gentiles, aren't we? But they name their children biblical names. In fact, we have some among us that are named those names. We have one little boy named Philip. Right? We have various ones around that are named after biblical names. We have one that's named David among us. We have a Thomas among us. I hope he's not a doubting Thomas. And he's not. But we have all kinds of people that have biblical names. You can just go on and call the road. And the larger the congregation, the more names you'll have. But it's, it's simply stating that the Gentiles, that they're going to delight to call themselves and identify themselves as, as the Lord's people. And from the perspective of the New Covenant, those of the church will also tattoo their hands or mark themselves as God's people. Look at the next verse. No, verse 5. One shall say, I am the Lord's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto the Lord, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Subscribe with his hand. In other words, he would make it known, you know, there will be a mark. We don't want the mark of a beast, do we? That's Revelation thirteen sixteen. But we want the mark of a Christian. There were soldiers who had to mark themselves as belonging to their commander. And Christians are so named because of their identification with Jesus Christ. And so we, we should not be ashamed to bear the mark of a Christian. We belong to the Lord. And God announces himself in verse 6 as the only God, showing that all idolatry is worth, worthless. In verse 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. He says, he's self-existent, I'm the first, he is the last, and with him there's abundant satisfaction. And, and who as I shall call and shall declare it, and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. In other words, the idols cannot, the vanity of idols, they cannot supply this spirit spiritual needs of God's people. But God can supply those. He says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? 
Yea, there is no God. I know not any. And when you pick up with verse 9, if you'll look at it, you'll begin to see that they are the exposing of the folly of idol makers. It says, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. See, the false gods are powerless. They are vain. It says, and they're delectable things. If you notice the marginal reference, it says desirable. They're delectable things shall not profit, and they are their own witness. They, should, they see not nor know that they may be ashamed. In other words, be confounded, be confused. The idols they treasure and they prize are worthless. If a man worships idols or if he makes idols because they're not able to see or know anything, they're not able to tell anything about the future. They do not have, have power over nations from being destroyed. And these man-made idols only cause shame to people. They certainly cannot do what God has done. And when we read the rest of this, we'll find out that they have very uh, great problems with these idols. Look on down in verse 10 and 11. Who formed a god or molten a graven image that is profitable for nothing. A, guy, a man that would make an idol and form a molten graven image, who would do such a thing anyway? He says, Behold all his fellows, his fellows, these men who make idols, all his fellows shall be ashamed. You know, all those that make idols and worship idols will one day have to stand before God as well. Behold, all his fellows shall be ashamed, and the workmen, they are they are of men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yea, uh, yet they shall fear, and they shall be ashamed together. In other words, they'll be confounded, they'll be ashamed. If you look at verse 12, you have the smith, and verse 13, the carpenter. And you read on down the next few verses, and you'll have the the materials that their idols are made out of, even the wood out of a tree. So verse 12 says, The smith with the tongs both work in the coals and fashioneth it with hammers and worketh it with the strength of his arms. Yea, he is hungry and his strength faileth. He drinketh no water and is faint. The whole proceeding in making a god is spoken of here. And the smith is employed. And the carpenter is employed. So diligent is this craftsman who works the figure that his physical needs are ignored. Look at this. Yea, he is hungry, verse 12, and his strength faileth, he drinketh no water, and is faint. In other words, he becomes so interested and so diligent in his work that his physical needs are ignored in order to work in iron while it's still hot. There's a man, John Williams, of the 19th century missionary in the South Seas, states that when the islanders made an idol, they would abstain from food and water. Can you imagine men that are creating an idol and making an idol out of uh, iron or silver or gold or whatever, or even wood, and later on when the carpenter makes them out of wood in verse 13. Can you imagine a man being so diligent and so taken with the creating of an idol that he will become completely faint and neglect food and water while he's trying to make idols? When you and I are true God's servants, 
And what effort do we put? Are we so diligent to serve God as men were to make idols? If we were half as diligent to serve the true and living God and would work hard to serve God as they would to make their idols. You see the thought? It's thought-provoking, isn't it? When you go down to verse uh, 13, it says, The carpenter stretcheth out his rule, he marketh it with a line, he fitteth it with planes, he marketh it with a compass. Look at all these ways he's using and things he's using of his tools, and maketh it after the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He's forming an idol, an idol after a poor, weak, dying creature, a man. He wants to make an idol that looks like a man to worship. Isn't that sad? And man is what? Here for a short time, and he's a dying creature. And it says... In verse uh, 14, he heweth him down cedars, and taketh the cypress and the oak, which he stretcheth for, uh, strengtheneth for himself among the trees of the forest. He planteth an ash, and the rain doth nourish it. In other words, he even grows the trees. Well, by the way, he can plant the tree, but who gives the rain that nourishes it? He can't even make it grow without God. But he can grow up the biggest tree in the uh, the world and still what, what is he going to do with that tree? It says, Then shall it be for a man to burn, for he will take thereof and warm himself. Yea, he kindleth it and baketh bread. Yea, he maketh a god and worshipeth it. He maketh it a graven image and falleth down thereto. The matter is to be made is only the stock of a tree. Some of it's good for nothing but for fuel to be burned and to kindle a fire and to bake his bread. That shows the folly of idols, doesn't it? It doesn't make any difference what he might use. And ironically, the same tree that furnished the material for the idol was also used as fuel for the fire to cook a man's meals and to warm himself. So you can see the, the value of it. Say, look, this tree is really good. I can't make it grow. I can plant it, but God has to send the rain to make it grow. But I'm going to take this tree and I'm going to make an idol out of this wood and then parts of it is not fit for anything but to kindle a fire to make the fire burn so I can cook my meals. Can you imagine having an idol like that to worship? Why not worship the true and living God who created all things, man and all creation and the heavens and the earth and all that therein is. And yet men make idols to worship. It shows the folly of idolatrous 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 worship. It shows the folly of 